I'm on right now. I don't believe you. That's not six. One plus two plus two plus one. You really are crazy. Well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. Me? No, come on. Don't be crazy. Welcome to Don't Be Crazy, a movie podcast where we delve into the world of cinema and explore what makes certain films good or bad. I'm your host, Zach Rancourt, and with me, as always, is Amanda Jane Stern. Every week, we bring together other film enthusiasts to analyze, discuss, and dissect some of the most popular and critically acclaimed movies of all time. Whether you're a film buff or just a casual moviegoer, our show is sure to provide you with a fresh perspective and thought-provoking insight into the world of cinema. So grab your popcorn, sit back, and join us as we explore the art of filmmaking and discover what truly makes a movie great. All that we ask is don't be crazy. Hi, Amanda. How, how's it going? It's good. I am so excited to talk about this movie. I love this movie so much. Yeah, you know, uh, this is going to be a real interesting one for me. Um, I have a lot to say about this, and it's good and bad and all of the above and all the below and whatever. So we'll just jump into it. The movie we are going to be discussing is Sunset Boulevard from 1950, directed by the famous and infamous Billy Wilder, uh, known for many, many, many films, uh, such as Double Indemnity, Double Indemnity, Ace in the Hole, Sabrina, Stalag 17, Some Like It Hot, and The Apartment, just to name a few. It was written by Charles Brackett, Billy Wilder, and D.M. Marshman Jr., based off of a screenplay called Can of Beans that they told uh, William Mayer, I believe, so that he could get off their back and he didn't know what they were making. So there's a lot of fun behind-the-scenes stuff that went on with this, this film, uh, definitely for sure. <laughs> the movie stars William Holden, an amazing performance by Gloria Swanson, Eric Von Stroheim, Nancy Olson, Jack Webb, and Cecil B. DeMille. And there are also several cameos from well-known Hollywood actors like Buster Keaton, H.B. Weber, I think is his name, um, and many, many more. So uh, we'll discuss those later. Critically, this movie is loved on IMDb at an 8.4 out of 10. And Rotten Tomatoes, it's even better. 98% critic score. That's insane. That's so Fuck high. that 2%. 2%. There's always... Fuck it's a, that. It's always 9 out of 10 dentists recommend. There's always one asshole. So, <laughs> um, And it has a 95% audience score. So the audiences really love it too. I think the 5% is something that... You know, it escapes me a little, but I do believe that maybe because people aren't really prone to classic black and white films, uh, that could be the reason why. Oh, but we black will. Black and white is so sumptuous. It is so gorgeous. And, and I and I agree with you to 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 a, oh. a very far extent. Um, but I have a question that at the end of this that we can. <laughs> Uh, I saw to. it and I'm trying to think about how to answer it because I might not be the person to ask. Oh, that's that okay. Too. I think I, I think I can also answer my own question too. <laughs> um, so it is streaming on Paramount Plus because it is a Paramount property. Um, I'm sure you could buy it anywhere streaming if it still is uh, available to purchase. But yeah, Paramount Plus is what I watched it on. It's also on, um, and not like someone uploaded it illegally, but actual YouTube movies mm -hmm. oh nice for, yeah so i watched it on that sweet okay cool because i don't have paramount plus anymore oh i don't know yeah i got rid of it during the strike um <laughs> i don't blame you and haven't renewed all of my subscriptions probably did when there's a 
TV show on Paramount I was watching, and I think when the second season of that comes around, maybe I'll renew. But I watched everything I wanted to, and then the strike happened, so I didn't give the money. I think out of all the streaming services, Paramount Plus is probably the weakest. I actually just use my friend's login, and that's how I have it. I would never pay for it otherwise. It's, I mean, I've watched like some South Park, uh, like mini movies that they've done, limited movies they've done, and then surprisingly, I actually watched Teen Mom Two. I jumped back on that for some reason, and I like started binging it. I went nine seasons of Teen Mom Two. Uh, don't ask me. Don't ask me how and why. I just I remember it from when I was growing up, and. I just got hooked. I don't know what it was. <laughs> I'm currently doing a uh, a a watch of Ugly Betty that Ooh. I I didn't do it back when it was on. I caught episodes here and there, but I didn't actually watch it. And so now I'm in season one, and I'm probably halfway through the first season. And super entertaining. There's also stuff that I'm just like, oh, this character. How many <laughs> episodes? And I was looking. There's a character Walter, the boyfriend, in season one. And from episode, from just the get-go, I was like, dear God, I hate this man. He's terrible. <laughs> He's gaslighting her. He cheated on her. And now her family is on her to get back with him. And I actually Googled, how much do I have to sit through the schmuck? And then I found out that even when the show was airing, critics hated him and reviewers and, and watchers hated him. They were like, he's not doing anything for the story. He's annoying. Mm -hmm. He's hampering the rest of the plot. And we like, he cheated on her. We like her. We don't like him. We don't want her to get back with him. Why is her family pushing her to do that? We don't like this. This does not work for anybody. So I wonder why they even stuck with it for season one. Yeah. I do like America Ferreira. I think she's, she's awesome. Wonderful. Yeah. She's fantastic. So I, I never got into that, nor did I get into Superstore, but I did like her in, in the Barbie movie quite a bit. Oh, she's always been amazing, and mm -hmm. I find it so weird that we ever pretended. And this this is bringing me right back to 2006 when I was a teenager and, and being the shape that I am, which this is an audio format, so that means very <laughs> little to our listeners, but I'm, I'm, I'm tiny. I am. I'm not going to pretend like I'm not. I'm five foot two. <laughs> But I, I'm human skinny, if that makes sense. I'm not what we considered actress skinny back at the time when you and I would have been young, which was, you know, being a size double zero. And I, you know, I've always had hips and a chest. Uh, well, not always that, but I've always had hips. And, <laughs> you know, so growing up at that time when when the idea that, like, this is what skinny was, was you had to be so, so unhealthily thin that even women like Kate Hudson got fat shamed in the early yeah, that 2000s. that was crazy. Right? <laughs> right? And it, it makes me think about that. So, and obviously the show is to some extent skewering that, but just the fact that we ever pretended America Ferrera, Ferrera is not tiny. There's like one episode, it's the first episode, where to try to humiliate her, they make her put on this like spandex crop top and booty shorts and she's next to these like six foot tall stick thin models and of course the models look great they're models but i'm looking at her and i'm like we're supposed to think she looks bad she's got her tits look fantastic you gave her shorts a size too small so like okay that's stupid but um she looks curvy and her tits look fantastic why is that embarrassing <laughs> i don't know People are crazy. <laughs> Being a woman is hard. I, I, I apologize. That's a, that's a bummer. 
Um, let's jump into our discussion with Sunset Boulevard. So trivia, there's a, there's a lot of good trivia out there. It was hard to cherry pick some of these, but the character of Norma Desmond is actually modeled on the fate of several leading actresses of the silent era. Mary Pickford lived in seclusion away from the public eye, while both Mae Murray and Clara Bow had well-documented struggles with mental illness. Uh, apparently, Mary Pickford was not super happy about this role. Um, I think Clara Bow, the same thing to the Norma Desmond role. Um, when Gloria Swanson finished Norma's final scene, the you know, the, okay, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready mm-hmm. for my close-up, which everyone gets wrong, by the way. Everyone says, I'm ready for my close-up, Mr. DeMille, but it's actually the other way around. Yep. Um, it's just like, Luke, I am your father. It's, doesn't say all that. All right, Mr. Yeah. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Exactly. Uh, when Gloria Swanson finished Norma's final scene, the mad staircase descent, she burst into tears and the crew applauded. Even though it wasn't the last scene filmed, Billy Wilder threw a party for her as soon as the shot was finished. It is really good. And it's in the camera move. It's great in it. Um, you really get that awesome close up of her and you feel kind of isolated. Uh, the, the blocking of the extras are it's fantastic because they're all just almost motionless as she comes down the stairs. And so like like the staging of the camera and how it's how it's tracking her along it. It's just really, really well done. So I agree. I think her performance is is the standout in this film easily. Um, so this was Eric von Stro- Stroheim, uh, the guy who played Max. He suggested the revelation that Max was writing all of Norma's fan mail. So that big revelation when Norma's like, I get 100,000 letters a year or something. Max was writing all of those, mm-hmm. which was a pretty interesting reveal. Um, He's also her first husband. First husband and directed her and he just felt bad. It was It's more it was than odd. that. Oh my God, it's so much more than that. And I'm so excited to yeah, get into that psychology. And then finally, when filming began, William Holden was, was uh, 31 and Gloria Swanson was 50, the same mm-hmm. stated age as her character. Principal photography took place from April 11th to June 18th, 1949. And despite the 19-year gap in their ages, Holden and Swanson died just two years apart from each other. Holden in 1981 at age 63 and Swanson in 1983 at 84. In a case of life mirroring art, she outlived him. Yeah. He He had a uh, very bad drinking problem. There's actually a quote from Billy Wilder after he died. And it was Wilder saying that he heard about his death and he was like, you know, if you had told me that he'd been run over by an elephant on a trip in Africa, he was a very big animal conservationist um, and like a big explorer who traveled everywhere. He, he said, like, if you had told me he'd been run over by an animal or a plane crash or an angry ex-girlfriend, mm-hmm. I would say that made sense. But he got drunk and fell mm. and bled out. Oh, geez. And like, it's the saddest way to go That's for someone who... And I'm, I'm still paraphrasing Billy Wilder's quote, but it was like, a, yeah. he said it's like a really pathetically sad death for someone who was so interesting in life. God, that's terrible. Mm-hmm. That's very terrible. Um, <clears throat> for anyone who has not seen Sunset Boulevard, I highly recommend you go watch it. So stop listening to the podcast because you're crazy. But here is a five minute synopsis on Sunset Boulevard. At a mansion on Sunset Boulevard, a group of police officers and photographers discover the body of Joe Gillis floating face down in the swimming pool. In a flashback, Joe relates the events leading to his death. Six months earlier, Joe was a down-on-his-luck screenwriter trying to interest Paramount Pictures in a story he submitted. Script reader Betty Schaefer harshly critiques it, unaware that Joe is listening. Later, while fleeing from repossession men seeking his car, Joe turns into the driveway of a seemingly deserted mansion inhabited by forgotten silent film star Norma Desmond. 
Norma asks his opinion of a script she has written for a film about Salome. She plays she plans to play the role herself in her return to the screen. Joe finds her script abysmal but flatters her into hiring him as a script doctor. Moved into Norma's mansion at her insistence, Joe sees that Norma refuses to accept that her fame has evaporated and he learns that her butler Max secretly writes the fan letters she receives. At her New Year's Eve party, he realizes she has fallen in love with him. Joe tries to let her down gently, but Norma slaps him and retreats to her room. Joe visits his friend Artie Green and again meets Betty, who thinks a scene in one of Joe's scripts has potential. When he phones Max to have him pick up his things, Max tells him Norma cut her wrist with his razor. Joe returns to Norma, and their relationship becomes non-platonic. Norma has Max deliver the edited Salome script to her former director, Cecil B. DeMille, at Paramount. She starts getting calls from Paramount executive Gordon Cole, but refuses to speak to anyone except DeMille. Eventually, she has Max drive her and Joe to to Paramount in her 1929 Isada Frascini. DeMille welcomes her affectionately and travels her... Didn't they say 32 in the movie? What? The year? The car. I think oh, they said it was 32. I mean, I, I, you didn't write the synopsis. No, this is all Wikipedia. <laughs> I'm fairly certain he specifically says, ah, a 1932. Nice. Well, 1932. There we go. <laughs> uh, DeMille welcomes her affectionately and treats her with great respect, tactfully evading her questions about the script. Max learns that Cole wants to rent her unusual car for a film. Preparing for her imagined comeback, Norma undergoes rigorous beauty treatments. Joe secretly works nights in Betty's office, collaborating on an original screenplay. His moonlighting is found out by Max, who reveals that he was a respected film director who discovered Norma, made her a star, and was her first husband. After she divorced him, he abandoned his career to become her servant. Norma discovers a manuscript with Joe and Betty's names on it and phones Betty, insinuating that Joe is not the man he seems. Joe, overhearing, invites Betty to see for herself. When she arrives, he pretends he is satisfied being a kept man. However, after she tearfully leaves, he packs for a return to his old Ohio newspaper job. He bluntly informs Norma that there will be no comeback. Her fan mail comes from Max, and she has been forgotten. He disregards Norma's threat to kill herself and the gun she shows him to back it up. As Joe leaves the house, Norma shoots him three times, and he falls into the pool. The flashback ends and the film's re- the film returns to the present day with Desmond about to be arrested for murder. Norma's mansion is overrun with police and reporters. Having lost all touch with reality, Norma believes the newsreel cameras are there to film Salome instead. <laughs> Max directs Norma for her scene and the police play along. As the camera rolls, Norma descends her grand staircase for her close-up. Overcome with emotion, she stops and makes an impromptu speech about how happy she is to be making a film again. Norma continues walking towards the camera, a look of insanity in her eyes, her descent into complete madness. The scene fades to black. Whew. Okay. So what's so interesting about is that she wants to do Salome, which for one thing is a story, is a play for a much younger actress, of course. Mm. That's a role for, you know, a 20-year-old when what she should really be playing is... Phaedra. Who's Phaedra? Well, Phaedra, the Greek tragic heroine, is Sunset Boulevard. Blah, blah, blah. Sunset Boulevard is a Greek tragedy mm-hmm. in the trappings of a film noir, and I fucking love it. I also love Greek tragedies. Phaedra is a personal favorite, but that's what she should be playing Phaedra or Medea. Given the sexual stuff, Phaedra, she should really be playing Phaedra. 
Um, Phaedra's the woman who wants to sleep with her stepson. Oh, so I, I used to be really well-versed on Greek mythology. Um, it has been since high school, obviously, but I did... I, I felt like this was the makings of a Greek tragedy. Mm-hmm. Um, another, like a show like The Wire, I think is a Greek tragedy as well. And I can sum up that show like, you know, like the back of my hand. Mm-hmm. But um, with Sunset Boulevard, I kept thinking about that the entire time. Oh, I'm like, yeah. this is a noir, right? But this is also a Greek tragedy. It's also many things. And I think it's pretty clear that this film serves as a sort of cautionary tale about Hollywood, the glitz and glam of Hollywood and the, the dangers and the ups and downs. But specifically, I guess for you, Amanda, how does Sunset Boulevard critique the Hollywood film industry, particularly in its treatment of aging stars? I mean, so what's really interesting is this movie came out the same year as All About Eve, and they were up against each other at the Oscars. And those are both movies about aging female stars. The other one Mm -hmm. is, you know, Betty Davis, and it's a 40-year-old actress being replaced by a 30-year-old one and not a 50-year-old actress who is already 20 years out. And one of the big differences is that Norma Desmond, unlike in All About Eve, and Eve is the replacement. It's uh, I forget Betty Davis' character's name. Norma Desmond was a silent film star, mm-hmm. you know. Back then, we didn't need scripts. We had faces um, <laughs> is her line. And, that, and there was a huge thing – in Hollywood, when it transitioned from silent to talkies, that there were a lot of actors who who could not – and it's not that they couldn't still act. It's that they either didn't have good line delivery mm-hmm. or their voices were not appealing to audiences. Mm-hmm. That this, this happened, that it – you know, you went from – one style of film and and silent film is very different it is all about facial expressions you know if facial expressions physicality and that is why Gloria Swanson is so great in this part she really was a silent film star she did transition into early talkies um there's one with her I like it's not a great movie but oh boy it's a pre-code sex romp called tonight or never with her and Melvin Douglas and he could get it. Um, <laughs> but that's, you know, that's that's a pre-code talkie. And but she she actually had pretty much retired and yeah. came out of retirement for this movie. So unlike her character, she kind of she accepted that Hollywood wasn't there for her anymore and that she was not the the hot ticket any longer, which really sucks. I I think things are changing now that we are and and even in the decades that we have been alive, we are seeing women get to still be sexual beings later in their careers than we did in the past. That it's not ending at 35 anymore, but it's it's pushing into the 40s now. So that's, you know, that's a nice change. Um, <laughs> but this is still obviously a huge issue of, of women getting to age or not getting to age in Hollywood. And now, even if we are letting actresses be older, it's still the idea you have to look perfectly young. You can't physically age. You have to keep yourself perfect Mm -hmm. looking and men can go gray. They can get a little pudgy, but women, absolutely not. Um, Well, and she says, you know, it's it's not a comeback. It's a return. Um, mm -hmm. And and like you're saying, we've seen that resurgence in in careers in our lifetime uh most recently i'm the one that just pops to mind is brendan fraser uh mm-hmm. you know just won a, a 
Academy Award for Best Actor for The Whale. I mean, he basically um, got blacklisted. That wasn't an aging thing, unfortunately. That's right. A, even yeah. Worse. Exactly. And so, and that, I think that's what's so volatile about about Hollywood and the film industry is we love it so much. I mean, I'm I'm a huge cinephile, and I love the escapism that films present to me. But I also know that there are some dark, dark sides. And without even getting into the Weinstein's and and everything going on back there, um, with how they treat aging stars like she she was 50 mm-hmm. <laughs> that's not old and nope. so it's just it, it's crazy but like uh pola negiri uh pola negri i think is her name I, I looked her up she's a she was a polish silent film star the transition from silence to the talkies they couldn't understand her accent because mm-hmm. she had such a thick accent so she didn't really thrive into that industry and that's that's a bummer um have you seen babylon at all the new no i haven't so I don't want to say it's a good movie. It's an <laughs> I don't know what the hell is going on in this movie. Um, I I mean, Damien Chazelle is is one of the better directors we have working right now. This was like a passion project for him, though. And it is about old time Hollywood. So I think you would like it. See, I'll uh, admit I don't like La La Land. So I think is, it's bland this, and a pastiche of better musicals with better singing it, and and, and I'll, I'll i'll agree with you i love la la land but i'll I, I get your viewpoint on that because i've heard that same argument but with babylon this movie is like a cocaine induced off the rails romp like mise-en-scene in your face everywhere you go just like um but anyhow there is a, a wonderful part and it's not really spoiling it but um, margot robbie plays a a silent film actress who's very successful then tra- once they transition to sound you are on set with her when she's learning how to hit her mark, how to, you know, talk clearly. And, mm-hmm. and, and her, her, her diction is, 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 is important in this scene, obviously. And there's all these things that keep happening, like a door would close. And so they have to redo the whole scene. So like I, that immediately came to mind with sunset Boulevard, where I'm like, I understand that, you know, Norma had these times as a successful star, but it's it's like times evolve, like DeMille was saying, he's like the time evolved and it changed and she really wasn't wasn't ready for that. And I don't know if that's if that's necessarily fair for her to say, like, I wonder if that's why Max stays with her. Well, yeah, see, I do think part of the problem is is also her and Max, you know, Hollywood changing, going from silent to talking film. That's not necessarily a problem. Um, I don't know if you watch any silent movies. I am a big fan. I do love silence. I've, I've seen a handful, but m- mostly in just like film classes and stuff. Um, okay. But it's not like I'm like, yeah, I'm going to go watch The Great Train Robbery or whatever. I don't see, know. <laughs> I will go to the MoMA and see a silent film with a live accompaniment. Right. And, and I, that, but that would be fun. See, I mean, that oh, would so be much fun. There's, there's any Charlie movie. Chaplin stuff would be great. Right. So, well, yeah. they did actually. There's a 1927 silent film that I love. And it's the beginning of a film genre that I love. And the movie is called The Cat and the Canary. It got remade. I've seen the remake. It's a talkie remake. But I saw the the original is a mm-hmm. silent from 27. It's the first time we brought a German director over to the States. And it's the first instance of German expressionism. And it's also the first old Dark House movie. I love old Dark House movies. Um, but I've seen it many times. And last year, they screened it at the MoMA. And they had live... Uh, music with it and what I didn't know and I learned this is that the um, cut that 
I had seen and the cut that's available mm-hmm. is actually the B cut. So there were two cuts of the movie, the American cut that was theatrically released and then the B cut, which was released in Europe, which was like the second best takes. I have no idea why the fuck they made that, but that's what was available. And the original American cut was thought to be lost. They found it. They remastered it. Mm. And that's what I finally got to see. Holy shit, the difference is insane. Like, why did they make a B cut? I don't know. Also, it was amazing. I love that movie. That's not here or there. I don't know what my point was anymore. <laughs> Silent and talk. Oh, I know what my point was. Um, you know, change isn't always a bad thing. Going from silent film to talking film because we have new technology and we can actually capture voices, I think that's amazing. That is great. Letting people deliver lines, that's that's cool. That is cool technology. Replacing actors with AI is not cool technology. That's also not art. And that has no emotional integrity and it won't mean anything to anybody because you're not capturing anything. You are capturing something that is fake on fake. And in bullshit, and that's that's not art. Go fuck yourself. But a talking film, you know, isn't isn't necessarily that's not a problem. Uh, but not everybody was able to make that transition. I think for some, and they they kind of go into this in the artist that maybe that came out in yeah I don't know twenty fifteen now. Uh, that some, you know, for some people it was the voice thing, the accent thing, um. But for some, it was also that they were completely opposed to the change. Hmm. You know, they said, well, we've been doing it this way. Why should we? Why should we stop? Well, I don't know. Why not give this a try? You're still making art. You're still playing characters. And in your real life, you do you do talk, you know? Mm-hmm. Stage acting has always involved vocal performance, too. So think of it that way. Um and I, I think for Norma, she was opposed to any change because any change also meant she was changing. And she was not okay with with any sort of change. It, anything that made her seem older, that made the world around her seem like it was different than what she already knew. And I, I think Max almost created this delusion for her. He enabled all of it and he wrapped her up in this fake delusional world that he was building around her mm-hmm. so that she could never escape it. Yeah, it's I look at Joe Gillis too and and his struggles of being a writer. I mean, the inciting incident for this is, you know, he needs money and his car rolls up to the house <laughs> uh, in an abandoned house cuz he's running away from repo men. Um but everything leading up to that you know, he, he, he'll put a, a script in for whatever, right? So he is a screenwriter, not a great screenwriter, but he will take, um, he'll work on potatoes just so he can get money. He doesn't care what he works on. And, and I think that that's so interesting because we're, we're at this point in, in a guy's life where he's not thrilled to write as much anymore. He doesn't seem thrilled. He just needs money so his car doesn't get, get repoed. Um, and I, I think this movie without glamorizing uh, Hollywood, it really makes sure to show that there is a dark side to it too, or there is a cynical side. And and it is dangerous to play with that cynical nature. Um, I, I think of movies like Mulholland Drive or, <laughs> or Birdman or even Nope, actually. Um, and those are good examples of, of a satirical approach to a somewhat satirical approach to Hollywood and 
the the dark side of it and how it can chew you up and spit you out. Mm-hmm. Um, it it, 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 it tough is dangerous. Fucking business. It's it seems so cutthroat and so tough and. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm in it. It's a tough yeah. fucking business. <laughs> I can, I can only imagine. It's just it's, half the time I'm, I'm constantly worried. Oh no, I'm 30 now. Am I aging out of things? <laughs> am I no longer? <laughs> am I no longer fuckable? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you oh, know, geez. and it's right. I had that thought. I was like, fuck. I didn't become famous at 20, and now I'm 30. Have I, have I lost my fuckable years? <laughs> oh man. What a world we live in. Isn't it <laughs> oh, great? Boy. This is so great. <laughs> <laughs> so let me let me ask you this. How do you feel about the role? How do you feel about the role of Joe Gillis as both a character and an, a voiceover narrator in this? We get that voiceover. Um, like, I guess, how does that narration improve the audience's understanding of the story? I actually I love him. I'm not always the world's biggest narration fan, but I like it in noir. It has a purpose in in film noir, and it's very weird how this and weird in a good way, how this noir sets itself up as if he is, you know, the Humphrey Bogart style grizzled detective. Right, yeah. And, and so if you're playing off of those tropes, there's usually, you know, there's in a lot of them, there are the two women. There is the femme fatale and the innocent younger woman. Now, usually the femme fatale and the male lead are the same age. And, yeah. and she's dangerous in a different way because she's leading him down a dark path. Here, the path is being a kept boy. And she's almost 20 years older than he is. And I would not say Betty Schaefer is an innocent young thing. She's younger. She's closer in age to Joe uh, than Norma is. But she's, you know, she's a spitfire. She's a character. She's actually a person. She's, she's a normal person. A normal person in a job. You know, she's not this like wide-eyed, innocent, offering him like virginity pureness, like mm-hmm. in a lot of other noirs where there is that second character. Um, she's just normal. Yeah. And and shows him like normal life again and not this very strange, opulent, austere Mrs. Havisham-esque thing going on. Mm-hmm. It's very Mrs. Havisham. Uh, Miss Havisham. Great expectations. <laughs> um, no clue. I know what Great Expectations uh, is, but I, <laughs> I haven't read it or seen any productions of it. Oh, so. I just, I saw uh, Susie Eddie Izzard did a one-woman show of Great Expectations like oh, wow. a year ago. And I'm, I'm a big fan of Great Expectations. <laughs> and it's a reference that I make. I make references to Miss Havisham. I can talk today. I make references to Miss Havisham all the time. And my fiance, like you, not at all familiar. So when he saw that Izzard was doing a one-woman show of it, he bought us tickets. And now he goes, oh, I get all the references that you've been making for so many (laughs) years. But she's the woman in the wedding dress who she, you know, she lives in her old mansion and, and it's like stepping out of time into the past mm-hmm. you know can't can't move on into you know I, I i think the commentary is really interesting too and um you know i'm i want to hear your thoughts on this it, it provides this commentary on norma's mental health that she won't even that she's not even aware of because joe is is saying the things that are going on and, and we look at that through the film and are like okay yeah something clearly is is not right and joe thought that too and i think it it provides that that type of um, exposition we need. Oh yeah, he's he's our kind of our voice of reason here. Yeah, exactly. And you you can't help but also kind of really like him. 
He's he's a little bit of a poor sack. Yeah, and and an idiot. And that's that's the intriguing thing with his character is I was I was bouncing this around. I'm like, is he an antihero? Is he is he like a villain? Like what what is he? But he's just a sad sack. Yeah, and and so it it was interesting. But men in film noir, they are sad sacks. It's always the poor schmuck. Yeah. And and, and that's why I love Billy Wilder is that he takes that and he makes commentary on it. He knows this guy is a sad schmuck and he's making fun of him. Have you um have you seen the seven year itch? No. Okay, so it's another Billy Wilder movie. Mm-hmm. Um and it's based on a play. It's a Marilyn Monroe film. She's like twenty three. The guy is forty, something yep. like that. That's part of the of the storyline. She moves in to the apartment above his for the summer and he is obviously smitten with her and the whole movie is is flipping between what's really going on and what his fantasies are and his fantasies about her and it's it's him you know fantasizing that this is happening like I'm going to put on this classical music she's going to be so into it you know, she she's gonna love Rachmaninoff because it it really like it gets you going. And then she shows up and she's like, "Oh my god, I have this old champagne. I've got some potato chips. What is this music? I don't know what this is. Oh, do you know chopsticks? Because she's twenty fucking three. Mm-hmm. And the movie is just making fun of him the entire time. And that's and and so is this. You know, Sunset Boulevard is making fun of Joe. You know, it thinks he's a dumb schmuck. He got himself into this stupid mess. And no, getting murdered is not his fault. Norma is out of her mind. But everything that led up to him ending up at her house yeah. is because of his choices. And every like chance he had to just leave. Well, and before- he wanted he stayed there because it was his meal ticket. I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's kind of what I was talking about at, at the start was he had kind of given up on that dream of writing. It was Betty Schaefer who really opened that up for him. Um, and, you know, but he still, he caved, he gave in, he, he knew that this was a job. And like, that was, that was, I think that was an allegory for Hollywood where some people just take jobs because they just got to take jobs. And, and that's such a bummer because they come in bright eyed and bushy tailed and with stars in their eyes, but so many times you hear of these stories of failed actors, writers, whatever, um, who failed is, is really hard to say because it's not fair necessarily. It's it's just such a cutthroat industry. Yeah, and we so, have our paycheck projects and we have our passion d- projects. Exactly. And- yeah, exactly. I did think it was really interesting showing. So this film starts out with Joe Gillis in the pool mm-hmm. dead. Now, that's a big, bold move from Wilder, especially in the 50s. I think that that's something that is like, holy crap, right? We know that this main character is dead and we are going to be following. So the entire film, you know his fate. And I think that adds this added level of tension because from the beginning, like, again, we know he's doomed and the film forces us to watch as he as he makes these decisions and the weight of those decisions mm-hmm. um, and how um, Norma has like, you know, her shattered ego, it comes out to bear that kind of 
younger, ambitious uh, screenwriter that that Joe was because she brings that out of him as well in in a, in a negative way. Well, if that makes any sense. That kind of goes back to saying it's it's like a Greek tragedy or it's yeah. Shakespearean. Yep, going into those. You knew where they were going. They have those prologues that tell you exactly where they're going. Yeah. And, and yet you are still along for the ride because there is that part of you that's like, well, I need to know how it got there. But also, can we can that ending change? You know, is yeah. there a twist? And that's why and that's why I like shows like uh, Breaking Bad. I, I'm sorry, not Breaking Bad. Uh, Better Call Saul. I think Better Call Saul is better than Breaking Bad because, you know, the fate of Saul. It's it's to be able to develop something like that and and sell it and and make me intrigued is is just it's phenomenal and so that's what sunset boulevard does is we know he's going to die and we're waiting for it the whole time but they make allusions to it and and billy wilder was quoted as saying because the pool's an important part in this in this movie right that's where we first see him dead uh the midway point uh he he invites friends over to the pool and at the end you see the pool finally as it you know uh in, in his death we see him swim in it Right, yeah. So Billy Wilder was quoted as saying, "It's a story about a man who wanted a pool, he got a pool, and he died in a pool." And <laughs> and like that's I think that's that's so spot on because like the the pool represents more than just a swimming pool. It's it's this ostentatious thing that that Joe wanted in his life. I mean, he's selling Status his symbol. Yes, he's selling his soul um, to a person that he doesn't love, but to a life that he doesn't love, I should say. And, and a person he does not love. He does not love. Her. No. And he doesn't love her. But I mean, I, but I, I think it's just the, everything that encompasses it is what I'm trying to talk about. It was like, he, he just, he sells that and, and he's giving up and it's just, he believes that money will solve his problems. And I think that that's, that's kind of what it, it, it comes down to is he gives up on the person that he, he is. And then he literally becomes shackled to it. Right. Yeah, it's 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 interesting. Um, I'm going to follow up on that, though, too. I want to compare the character arcs of Joe Gillis and Norma Desmond with that of other characters in film. Um, do you have any examples of, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of like Anna Hero's villain protagonists like in Wolf of Wall Street, Great Gatsby, Psycho, Clockwork Orange or Parasite. Those are some of my examples. We'll go into them more. But if you have any examples of characters with their arcs that are like Joe and Norma. Well, I, I kind of brought up my my one already, but Seven Year Itch has that same, and I, another Billy Wilder movie, but also Double Indemnity. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm gonna let me let me go with a non Billy Wilder. I just think he is a genius. I really oh, yeah. do. Oh no, I, he's a, a man before his time. It's oh, it's God, crazy. Uh, Our, the amount yeah. that he said "fuck the Hayes Code," I love him. Love it. Yeah, um, yeah no, Psycho's a great because Psycho is also one of those movies that you think it's one thing and then it. It completely flips on its head and becomes a different. And you know what movie? Barbarian as well. Yeah, Barbarian is a a modern day psycho in my opinion. I think Barbarian is fantastic. It does that. It it flips what you think you're watching on its head. Um, But if you mean specifically like anti-hero... Any of the... Oh, Casablanca. Rick. Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. He definitely becomes a hero by the end, but he's also a bit of a, I don't want to say anti-hero, it's that he's trying to stay out of everything. Right. And he's not, he's not liked really. Yeah. He, he's no. very, he, he's very passive and, or not passive. He's, I don't know He's the word. actively choosing to not be involved. Yeah. Yeah. Um, laissez-faire. And it's, 
ultimately he changes, which is good. And that's the arc. Because here's what I'd say. Joe is never lying. He's not, he, he's never lying about it. But, like, but he's lying to himself. He, 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 he's trying to live up to a standard that he thinks he's at, but he, he's not. He's I a copywriter from Ohio. that he is lying to himself. He, he knows what he's doing and he brings it up many times. Like he's very uncomfortable with the fact that he's basically become a prostitute. But, it, you know, in Parasite, they are literally creating a false narrative about who they are and what their backgrounds are, which is much more talented. Mr. Ripley is that he is continuously lying and lying and lying until it all catches up with him and he lashes out in order to protect himself. Um, you know, whereas Parasite takes a barbarian turn. Well, um, but I think, but I think what I'm saying is, is Joe Gillis, they're both set by, there's this trajectory of, they think that they have a higher calling or they should be up at a higher echelon in, in the social status. And see, I don't think Joe thinks he should be at a higher echelon necessarily in the same way. I, I felt, that's how I read it. At least I, I felt he definitely did because he why would wants, he so easily acquiesce when she's like, cause he has literally nothing. He but, has repo men at his door. But to a degree, that's what I mean. Isn't that essentially uh, through necessity? It's, it's, it's the same, you know, same as want in, in this yeah, setting. But it's, it's not the same as wanting that level, but he's always wanted the pool is what like, is why I was talking about that before. I mean, I think the pool is an allegory for something else too. It's like he wants the glitz and the glam. He wants a to make it in Hollywood. Bit, but it's not like I don't think he's I I don't I don't think he's telling a big lie though. He's never he's not like created a lie about who he is. He just gets swept up in a whole, I, the lie is mean, Norma. It's her yeah. life. Her life is a lie. I just mean he's lying to himself. That's kind of, that's what I, I mean. And that's how I interpreted it. I totally understand if you didn't, but that's how I felt. And maybe that's just because of the product of like other films that I've watched, like I was talking about before, where it's just, that's how the character read to me. Because this is the first time I've ever seen Sunset Boulevard. So, you know, you've seen it way more times than I have, and maybe you've been able to analyze it more, but that's how, at least how I felt. So. I think he's deluding himself. More so than anything, which isn't quite the same as lying to himself. It, it's it's almost more warped. It, it's like he's literally he's become a, a prostitute for yeah. a, a kept boy for Norma is what he has become. Yeah. You know, and it's well, at least it means these fancy things, but he doesn't feel comfortable in these fancy things. He never does. You know, when you see him at the party. Um, and a really interesting interaction is when they're at that store and the the guy comes over with the coats and he says, you know, here's the camel hair and here's the whatever. Um, it's more expensive, but it's better. And he's like, well, we'll do the camel hair. And the guy literally like gets up real close to him and goes, if the lady is paying. Yeah. I know. Ugh. So, okay, moving on. <laughs> Along with being one of the most widely recognized film noirs of all time, I also do believe that this film can be regarded as one of the best satires of all time. Now, satire uses humor, irony, and exaggeration to expose and ridicule people or ideas. What are your thoughts on this idea? And is satire one of the hardest genres in filmmaking to pull off? Yeah, satire is pretty fucking hard. To do it well, it's pretty fucking hard. Oh, yeah. I think I think there are a lot of movies that claim to be satire, but... I'm not sure they know what they're satirizing. No. <laughs> I would say that I, I don't think Joker knows what it's 
satirizing that that claimed to be a a satire but that was a character who was like but he was a villain from the get-go like he he was never a good person he was always the worst person you could ever and it's not the tick that made him laugh it's that he was a narcissistic chauvinist i not an anti-hero he didn't go on an arc to me he was always bad and I'm I mean, like, this I, I felt he was an anti. I felt he was an antihero for the sake of the film, but I, I disapproved of what he did, and I, I wasn't, I didn't really relate with him. But I, I do don't a, think the film thought he was as bad as I, well, as a woman, thought he was from the jump. Yeah, and I think that that goes back to what you're saying: is the film doesn't really know what it wants to be, and so I think satire needs a target. And it, it, it's we don't know what it's talking about. Is it is for Joker? Is it mental health? Is it the Hollywood like with uh, Robert De Niro's character and stuff, uh, or stand up comedy? Like what what is it? And so they they really missed the mark on that. But I think Sunset Boulevard. Whereas, I mean, we're, also if we're talking like satires about horrible men, American Psycho, sure, pitch black, perfect, knows exactly what it's satirizing. Right. Knows I mean, what it's doing. Yeah. It's the yuppie nature, the mm-hmm. terrible, terrible white men in the 80s. And and yes. Oh, a, yeah. Agreed. And, and um, uh, so does. And yes, yeah, so does. But, and so do most of Billy Wilder's movies. Right. And and so, Sunset Boulevard, I think it's it's fascinating, too, because it's there are funny moments in it, but um, it definitely is more of a darker noir horror uh, satire, whatever you may be. I mean, there are so many fun elements in this movie. I mean, that that scene when Max is playing the piano, right? It's very Phantom of the Opera esque, oh, and I have Oregon. only that I've only seen or in Oregon. Sorry, I, tomato tomato, in my opinion. But um, it has that great shot of the close up of his white gloved hands as he's playing, and it's so eerie. And you're like, what kind of movie is this? And then just the the set design to itself, it's like Xanadu, right? Like Citizen Kane. That I mean, fucking production design. Oh it's, my. it's great. All, all it's of so the great. pictures that they got of her publicity Oh, yeah. Those were cool. Over the years. That was really good. And that said, <laughs> that alone said a lot about the character. That That's all you really needed is, and it's not necessarily being self-centered. It's, it's disillusionment, I'll just mm-hmm. call it again, where she's like, I'm still a star. This is me. It's, it's delusion, not disillusion. <laughs> well. She is delusional. I, She's completely yeah. deluded into thinking that the world know, but still feel, revolves around. No, I feel no, bad for calling been, her delusional. But just, she is. She I is know. living in a delusion. And it's not a delusion of her own making necessarily. I think it's a delusion of Max's making. Remember, he found her. He made her a star. He's not okay with the change. Yeah. He's just as not okay with it as she is. And he is exploiting that in her. Yeah. And I, I felt like when Max said he discovered her when she was like 16 or 17, I thought that they were trying to imply something else with that too is is he, he the, the industry corrupted her and that's why she is the way she is. And that's why I, w- I was scared about saying, not scared, I didn't want to say delusion because I'm like, it's not really fair that she's a byproduct of this terrible industry. No, that, but that doesn't that, change the fact that she is is literally living right, in a delusion. You, and yeah, and and but I mean, I just felt like she still she wasn't able to give up on her her dreams or the way that she was. But she is delusioned. Yeah, that's that's fair. I'll I'll say that. Um, but back to the satire thoughts with this too. 
you know, I mean, a lot of people, I think, that don't really understand satire. I mean, I look at Jojo Rabbit, and that movie is is beautiful. It's it's shot so well. It's written so well. Um, it's very it's a very hard watch mm-hmm. for for many people and for for good reasons. But that doesn't make it a bad movie. I mean, it's satirical through and through. I actually uh, so I actually saw a press screening of Jojo Rabbit, um, and I. <laughs> he'll never email me back now because now he's like a huge critic. But yeah. um, one of the one of the critics that was there um, was this guy Clayton Davis. He's he's now the like head critic over at Variety. So oh, wow. <laughs> you know, good for him. He he totally deserved it. Uh, but we were sitting near each other and ended up uh, like walking a mile out of the way to our subway stops with each other talking about the movie. And I remember we had a whole discussion about uh, satirizing like real traumas coming from our backgrounds. He Mm -hmm. is a black man. I uh, am Jewish. And we're talking about, you know, like especially in Jewish film culture satirizing the holocaust and and how that has such a huge um history and it it goes you know all the way back to to mel brooks doing it and and where is the line at what we determine is successful satire and what isn't successful satire and you know does does jojo rabbit hit that mark does it not, you know, and I think I, I think to some degree people found it also a little too twee that it is like too cutesy and it's it's attempt to satire. Um and it it is a hard discussion to have because you are talking about very real mm-hmm. atrocities. And and you know, and I personally I you know, I I love Mel Brooks's satire. I love the producers. I I think uh, To Be or Not To Be, which is actually a remake of an even earlier movie, is brilliant. I think Charlie Chaplin's uh, The Great Dictator, absolutely brilliant, really brave, because he did it at the time and was just like, this is my big fuck you. Yeah. You know, and it's kind of, and I think a, a lot of that also is Mel Brooks's satire was significantly, it was targeted. It was very much so, I am directly making fun of you to lessen your power. And I I don't know that Jojo Rabbit always hit that mark. Oh, interesting. It's been a long time since I saw it. I only saw it the one time at the press screening. So I, and I, I don't, I'm not going to go back and rewatch it, which I, I think says something. I have rewatched the producers. Hmm. I sing springtime for Hitler. I agree. Make fun of Hitler. It, it, it's like Trump. You lessen their power. They hate being made fun of. It was like when Melissa McCarthy played Sean Spicer on SNL and nothing could have bothered Trump more than him being played by a woman. And and but that I, I do think that says something is that maybe there's something in that satire that just didn't didn't quite hit. Huh. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to talk about it too much just because I want to stay with Sunset Boulevard. Yes. But there's, I mean, there's a lot I love about that movie. Um, and I, I think, you know, it being more of a juvenilian satire, I think, is 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 probably more on, on par. But 
Um, yeah, satire is definitely hard. So uh, let's discuss the film's use of noir elements. So how does the cinematography and lighting contribute to the overall atmosphere and tone of the movie? Oh my God, that scene when she stands up and they're watching movies and, and you know, and she goes back in those days, we didn't need words. We had faces. And then she stands up and the light from the projector is just backlighting her and you see the like the dust particles. Holy fucking shit. This movie is gorgeous. Yeah, it really is. I love is. black and white cinematography. I love film noir. I do. And and a lot of it is because of the use of shadows. And, oh, it adds such an an eeriness to so much of it. And it adds to, because remember, this is 1950. We had color. Mm-hmm. You know, occasional movies did come out in color then. And, and if, but this is very intentionally not in color. Hmm. It's old, you know, it's old yeah. like Norm. I mean, she's not old. And even even Joe is like, you're 50. You're not ancient, yeah. but you need to act like an adult. Um, but it was but done purposefully. World, it was, her the world film is was black and white. Yeah. yeah. And oh, it's beautiful. Fascinating. But let's combine these questions then, too. So let's talk about black and white Hollywood films. They can be tough uh, watches for modern audiences. I know that Candace, when we were you know, when I started watching it, she, she was like, oh, I'm not interested in this. And I was like, well, you're not supposed to be. I am because I'm watching it for the podcast. But I love that shit. I love I love film. And, you know, I'll admit that old Hollywood and classics aren't really my thing. However, I've been watching more Kurosawa films and and this. And I told you I watched The Killing, Stanley Kubrick's mm-hmm. 1954 or 56 film. And that's black and white. And like, it's so great you have to kind of separate a little bit of, of your expectations of modern film, but like comparing that black and white with this and, and, and how it fits in with like the cinematography and the lighting and everything and how those noir elements kind of blend. But yeah, like let's discuss that a little bit more. Well, I think we have this idea that black and white means old stodgy Mm -hmm. and Oh boy, watch some actual black and whites and see what's going on in those movies. I mean, people are, People are horny in a lot of those movies. (laughs) And you see it. And you're like, wait, they did that back then? Yeah, they did. Um, Isn't that why they had the Hays Code? Oh, my God. (laughs) But, okay, Billy Wilder did a lot to skirt the Hays Code. In this movie, there's stuff that you – when he sits on the bed and she's lying on the bed and he leans down to her, yeah, it it fades out. But we just did something that, oh, I'm sorry. How the fuck did you get this by the Hays Code? That's so and if, fascinating If you watch Some Like It Hot, yeah. the Hays Code said no to Some Like It Hot. And he said, I don't care. Good. And it came out anyway. And it did so well. It's one of the movies that helped destroy the Hays Code. Hays Code, fuck you, Joseph Green, <laughs> in your face. We don't um, want censorship. <laughs> no. No, I don't. Um, <laughs> It, it, it's more than that. It, it's also stupid, and it's basing in racism, in like hypocritical Catholic morality. It's, mm-hmm. it's not. It's bullshit. Um, but I, I think, I think black and white cinematography is gorgeous. Mm-hmm. I, I love the lighting. I always wonder why actors look so much hotter back then. <laughs> I know. I texted you. Bring back chest hair. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> when he gets out of the pool and he's shirtless, and I'm just like, this is lovely. Let's let's do more of this. I like that. Um, that's a good looking man right there. Yeah. <laughs> but I I don't know if I'm the person to sell old movies to, to people who don't love them because I grew up on them and I I might like them oftentimes more than I like newer movies. 
mm-hmm. I am a huge fan of of older films and I always have been and I I find them so fascinating. I find the scripts very often, you know, fast-paced and quippy and I love the actors. Um and I think because I grew up with them so much, I'm used to the things that people today are not so used to and bothered by the pacing or you know certain acting choices that don't don't phase me just because it it really is something that I'm so accustomed to right that like I find comfort in these movies and I and then yes I watched a lot growing up and then also being a film student when I was in college and really studying them and and learning about the Hays Code and and all of the things that it took to make these and you know, finding all the jokes that they put in to get away from the code or learning about pre-code cinema, which I find to be one of the most fascinating periods in film history. I I love all of it. And I, you know, I I, I did an interview actually with um, Horror Squad recently. Oh, yeah. Cool. Right. And, and one of the things that he asked me was, you know, what are my favorite horror movies? And of course, my first answer is a whole bunch of like... Like old movies. <laughs> old movies. Bunch yeah. of black and whites, bunch of 70s movies. And he goes, you're probably the first person who's who's gone to those and right. not to... Because people are not used to the pacing. And I'm just like, I am. I love it because I, I like that we, you know, get to build these characters and you kind of get to live in these characters and feel they feel lived in before yeah. just jumping into a plot and I like that. I like getting to know these people cuz then I feel something for them more. Well, and you're absolutely right and I think it's a product of of you know, you grew up with these films and so it's a lot easier for you to say that I'm going to watch all of Billy Wilder's um works. But for me, obviously I'm a late bloomer to it. Like I've already said, "Oh, I don't know what that is or I haven't seen that like 10 times to you." <laughs> um but it's it, it's okay because there's so many films out there that, you know, I'm on the other end of that spectrum where I've seen a lot more uh, newer films and, and like, that's okay too. And I, th- I think there's beauty in this. And for me, as somebody who is a, a student of film, a fan of film, I love to be able to have a recommendation and it, and, and look at the film and be like, okay, maybe that wasn't my favorite. Uh, like Rashomon is not my favorite Kurosawa film, but I, I understand the importance of it because of how different it was, where you have these conflicting stories that are all, you know, nuanced. And, and I think that movies like Sunset Boulevard are eye-opening to me because you have a film that's so satirical in nature, that's scary, that is just off the walls, beautifully shot. There are so many wonderful, I mean, it's screaming, the mise-en-scene is just popping off the uh, picture, right? And we talked about production design. Everything oh is done so well. And it's like, it's, it's, it's damn near perfect. I mean, just the idea of having... Uh, all of these Buster Keaton, Cecil B. DeMille, had a Hopper, Anna Q. Nielsen, mm-hmm. all of these movie stars from back in the day, H.B. Warner was his name, all these movie stars from back in the day play themselves in the movie is is like unheard of. And, and in, in 1950, Chaplin impersonation the Charlie Chaplin impersonation, amazing. it was great. And, and, and like that's what was so cool about this movie in my opinion is they were so – self-reflective i think and 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 so topical um Mm -hmm. so apparently the song that they're all singing when they when he goes to the new year's party so that song won the academy award for like best original song at the at the most recent academy awards or like two years before 
And those people singing it were the ones who actually like the the creators of it. So that's like I listened to this podcast about this, so I'm stealing this. But they're like that would be like if Damien Chazelle came and sang like City of Stars, you know, because they yeah. won for best original song. And like that's so right. Or like Alicia Keys is at this party singing for something, right? I mean, it's so fascinating that Wilder had had the gusto and 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 the ideas to do that is like I'm going to put this in so I'm watching this as an audience member and be like holy shit like this is topical yep. this is now uh, but and- also how many academy award nominated things did he direct he he was a heavy heavy hitter and for good reason he was legitimately fucking talented and I I think his movies age and I'm not going to say every old movie ages well. They don't. There are definitely ones I watch and I think, oof, that was a clunker. Oh, yeah, 100%. Billy Wilder's movies age really well. They Their gender politics tend to be really progressive. Yeah. Seven, this, the seven-year itch, some like it hot. That. <laughs> and somehow, even by today's standards, because we're regressing, it's significantly more. <laughs> Well, and he's definitely made me a fan, and and if anything, curious. Like I'm, I'm curious to to watch more of his films. And the black and white, it can be tough. I and I totally get it. You know, we're so accustomed to a certain way. It'd be like if we went right back to a dumb phone instead of a smartphone. The you know we grew up with it, so we'd pick it back up. But it's just not really the same. But I do think it's important that people watch these these older films. And discover that like there were so many different ways that they were making movies back in the day. And like they're very important in film history. And so I I think that'd be my pitch to somebody is like, look, it's like how they say, you know, most works are written from Shakespeare or the Bible. They have influence from those. Most films nowadays draw and borrow from these older films of the Mm -hmm. past. And, and, And you can point those out and you can make a fun game about it, too. But oh, yeah. Yeah, it's and those films reference each other all the time. Exactly. And I also I love Technicolor movies too. I actually really love Technicolor. See, I'm, I'm not huge. I'm not huge on them. They 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 have a weird. I don't know. They're weird to me for some. I, I know, prefer I black and it. white way over Technicolor. But I prefer black and white. But I love Technicolor. I think it's so interesting. Right. I think it's so opulent, and I am into it. It all feels so fake. <laughs> I don't know what it is, it's, but <laughs> it's like hand painted each color. It's it does, so and and Wizard of Oz is the one that comes to mind immediately because you know presented in Technicolor, and it it all just seems so fake. Yeah, like hand painted. Love it. And it's it's so fascinating it's, to me. It's like a Renaissance painting color, and yeah. I absolutely love it. <laughs> Um, okay, so final question. How does Sunset Boulevard resonate with audiences today and what aspects of the film remain timeless in its portrayal of Hollywood and fame? And not from just your standpoint, but like putting putting on a, a lens cap of the entire like world if, if people were to watch this. How do you think I mean, it resonates? I, I literally brought up the whole AI thing and the idea of changes in Hollywood and what's yeah. good and what's bad. Uh, you know, not that that is anywhere near the same thing as talking, people, talk, human <laughs> people talking like humans and um, – things things but you know we're still dealing with changes all the time in hollywood and obviously the idea of actors aging specifically actresses and when you lose your bank ability that is still a huge issue in hollywood (laughs) you know it's it's sadly still so topical you know it, it still resonates so much that even me watching this as a 30 year old can think about you know, how, what's my shelf life in this industry anymore? Right. And, you know, it is, it is sad because you do think of some celeb or some stars, movie stars that were 
Like I think of Anthony Hopkins, who, I mean, the guy is fantastic. Sometimes he has some duds, but then it's like, wait, where did he go? He hasn't been anything in a while. And I think a lot of that was because of his agent, but uh, it's, it's just unfortunate to think that this industry can take those celebrated amazing actors and maybe just kick them to the curb a little bit. So we do see it and I don't have any examples off, off hand, but um, it is, it is something that I do think about. And I think that that's what knocked out of the park with Sunset Boulevard for me is, is just the ideas behind it. I love Sunset Boulevard. I think. Well, so that, <laughs> that's great then because I want your hottest take. Cause I want your, uh, most controversial take on this movie, on movies of the genre, this era, actors, themes, whatever. Oh shit. I forgot about this. part. <laughs> oh, it's okay. I got a good one. No, go first. I need to think of something. <laughs> okay, so here it is. This movie is damn near a masterpiece, but I didn't really like it as much. So it's one of the ones that I'm like, I won't really rewatch this anytime soon. I think this movie is amazing, but it's not going to be like one of my favorites or one that I want to rewatch anytime soon. I just, I think it's more amazing because when I was watching it, I was like, man, this is an amalgamation of kind of everything like I'm creeped out by this. Why should I be creeped out? Should I be rooting for Jay or Joe Gillis? Like what's up with Norma? Is she going to like maybe die at the end or like what's going to happen? And ultimately it ends the way it does. And it was, it was good, but I just was like, okay, that, that was it. That's all I needed. I don't need to do it again. And I think I, I really appreciated everything that Billy Wilder did for it and what he was saying. And I more appreciated this movie after having a discussion about it. Um, so in that sense, I can say it's a, it's a damn near a masterpiece. I just don't think that I'll watch it again anytime soon. I think that's such a hot take. I have movies that I feel that way about. But I, I mean, I definitely, God, I would. I don't know. I I don't think that's, that's, I I think there are things that I, I will watch and think you're right. That's a masterpiece. And I've done it and I'm not, and I'm, I'm probably not returning to maybe one day very, very far. But like I, I got it. I'm good. I loved it. It was great. Don't get me wrong. But I'm good. I, I think well, that's fine. And I, st- I, the reason I think that's a hot take is because Sunset Boulevard is is a base for so many other films. I mean, we could sit and make a whole episode on movies that drew influence from Sunset Boulevard. And while I agree with that, I, I I'm kind of like I just don't want to watch Sunset Boulevard again. Uh, the only masterpieces are like near masterpieces I can think of that I don't really want to watch again are things like Schindler's List because just mm-hmm. the subject matter is so heavy. You know, he almost directed that. Billy Wilder almost did. Mm-hmm. Holy shit! Damn. He's but he was old. He was like I'm basically retired and it's yeah. kind of too close to home because he lost a lot of family yeah. in the Holocaust. I mean, I can't imagine. But I mean, that movie, yeah, like it's a very hard watch. Uh, so. Uh, it's I, I think that's for me, like when I saw these scores, 98 percent, 95 percent, I'm like, damn, what am I missing? These people like absolutely love this. And, and the way that I interpret that is they're like, we're going to watch it again. It's it's a few times a year sort of thing. That's at least how I looked I don't at think it. That's necessarily but, true. Yeah, I, mean, I well, definitely, maybe that was maybe that was my hot take, but <laughs> I have definitely watched it more than once. Um, but even still, there are movies that I will watch again and again that I do not think are perfect movies, but they're comfort movies. Oh, this sure. This isn't a comfort. This is a movie I think is brilliant. It's a movie that like I'll make other people watch and it's something that I will get sucked into if I put it on, yeah. but I, I'm not returning to it every single year. You know, it's, it's not shitty, shitty bang, bang, which I make my fiance watch once every year. <laughs> 
Well, and I just don't mean, ask. I mean, rewatching it from the standpoint of analyzing it further. Like when I really like mm. something, I, I, I jump on it. I'm like, oh, man, I got to watch this again so I can see things that I missed or pick up on those cues. And with this, I'm just kind of like, no, I'm good. I think. Oh, see, I don't always do that. I I don't I, really, I typically actually. do. That's why I said it was like my hot. Like I typically like the, the, the Shining is one of my favorite movies of all time. But I mean, I'll, I'll rewatch that till the cows come home because I'm like, oh, I'm going to pick up new things on it. And it's not even necessarily like a guilty pleasure. It's more just I want to see what else I can draw from it. Mm-hmm. So like this one, I don't know if I need to analyze anymore because I got it all <laughs> or not all, but I got what I needed to get from it. Oh boy, I still need to think of a hot take. Shit. <laughs> just, just hoping we can keep going. Um, what about Billy Wilder? Do you think he is one of the greatest directors of all time? Yeah, I think he's fucking brilliant. I don't think that's a hot take, though. Mm, well, if he's so great, how come I haven't seen any of his stuff? <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's not a, a, that's a personal question. That's, that's a yeah, personal thing. Yeah, because I don't know. You're, you're... I just don't, I, I haven't watched much. I mean, I know who Billy Wilder is. I'm not an idiot, but I just haven't really watched much of any of his stuff. And so this is definitely opening the door for me. I'm going to partake in viewing his films from, from here on out. I th- I think he had some better progressive and gender politics than some directors we get today, to be honest. I think yeah, he was a enough. lot more ahead of the curve. I like that. That's that I, I would, I I would say that. he was a lot. He was definitely ahead of the curve from Alfred Hitchcock. <laughs> well beyond. And I love Hitchcock. I do. Don't get me wrong. But uh, he had his lady issues. He he had some big sexism issues that um, I would not say Billy Wilder's movies have. <laughs> Ooh, that Hitchcock. <laughs> <laughs> I love okay. his movies. I do. I've seen a lot. Um, but I, I also think that there's a lot of Actually, you know, going back and rewatching some of older Hitchcocks, there's some weird pacing that you're like, why did you pace this this way mm-hmm. that I don't see with Billy Wilder's movies? He knows how to pace well and trim the fat. There's my hot take. There you go. I can dig it. It's good at pacing. <laughs> um, okay. Well, I think I know your answer, but what is your letter grade for Sunset Boulevard? It's an A fucking plus. Ooh, A fucking plus. Nice. <laughs> Um, I, you know, I, I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm there with you. It's an, it's an A for me, just a solid A. Um, it's, it's, it's great. I, I think the, what they're doing with it, what Billy Wilder's doing with it, all the performances, uh, like we're talking about the production design, everything is so dang good in this movie. And I highly recommend everyone watch it. Um, and just go on with an open mind because it's, it's fun. So that's <laughs> and also, also people, William Holden is hot. He's very nice to look at. Uh, very yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> I'm into it. Gloria Swanson. She's she's great to look phenomenal. at as well. Phenomenal. She steals. She's she grabs phenomenal. the screen and never lets go. And I love it. So, um, Amanda, what are you working on now? And where can we find you on social media? What am I working on right now? Oh, well, I am still working on that short that that Peter uh, oh, yeah. was on. Yeah, we are filming this weekend. We are almost wrapped, so that's exciting. Um, We are now on our festival break with Perfectly Good Moment because the holidays are coming up, and that's very nice. I love a break. Um, (laughs) I am working on a new script called Beast with Two Backs. Um, Yes, the Shakespeare reference is intentional. You're welcome, Othello fans. Um, (laughs) I'll let you look it up. 
I'll have to look it up. <laughs> Good luck. Um, okay. It. I and I'm working on a edits right now, but I have a director attached, so that's exciting. Uh, yeah, that's that's. Oh, I. Am I allowed to talk? You know what? Come back to me on this one, and we'll see if it goes through. I'm not going to mention it now. Save it. Save it for the holidays. Yeah, holiday episodes. Um, and I am on all of the socials at Amanda Jane Stern. Excellent. Well, happy birthday too. You got oh, a birthday coming up. By yes. the time this posts, it'll be before your birthday because I'm trying to get it out like tomorrow. But yeah, <laughs> happy birthday. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. And of course, everyone else, thank you for listening to the Don't Be Crazy podcast. Remember to follow us on Twitter and threads at DBCrazyPod and at ZachDale60, where you can share your thoughts, give us film suggestions, tell us if we're crazy, or just send funny memes. Make sure you subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and leave us a five-star review. Additionally, we're also available on every other major podcast app. Thank you for listening, and until next time, don't be crazy.